This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat in Southland District with your Extension Crop Report. When it comes to plant nutrients, sulfur might not be in the top three major nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but is it sure in the top of the secondary nutrients? Most plants' available sulfur comes from the breakdown of organic matter, which is why sulfur deficiency is more common in low organic matter sandy soils. Sulfur deficiency is possible in our heavy clay soils, high yielding crops like corn and sometimes soybeans, but also in winter crops that are grown at times when organic matter turnover slows down. Wheat this time of year and in the early spring is especially known to have symptoms of sulfur deficiency. First, let's talk about sulfur in the soil. Sulfur is a mobile nutrient much like nitrogen, so it is not something that can build up for later use like phosphorus. In its organic form sulfate, will tend to cling to clay particles, but also tends to leach down into the subsoil. In this area with our heavy clay and shallow soils, sulfur can collect in the heavy clay right above the impermeable or rock layer. Unfortunately, this can be out of the range of our young plant roots. Sulfur in the plant has a lot of the same functions of nitrogen, being involved in protein creation and chlorophyll production. This is largely why sulfur deficiency is often mistaken for nitrogen deficiency, and from the road looks like yellowing areas on terrace sides and slopes and eroded areas where organic matter is lower. Looking at the plant, however, a sulfur deficient plant will have chlorosis in the new leaves, while nitrogen deficiency will be affected in the older leaves. This is easiest to see in the boundaries between the very yellow wheat and the wheat that is still green. Severely deficient wheat in both nitrogen or sulfur can be completely yellow. However, minor deficiencies might not be seen at all, but can still affect yield. No-till fields, which tend to be colder in the spring, are more likely to show symptoms. So can wheat planted after soybeans. Although soybeans don't normally have sulfur problems, they uptake large amounts of it and deplete the soil. Before the soybean residue breaks down, there can be a temporary tie-up of sulfur. Testing for sulfur in the soil can only accurately be done with a 24-inch profile test, since we don't often have 24 inches of soil around here as deep as possible. Since sulfur is mobile in the soil, a normal 6-inch soil sample isn't going to catch the real status of sulfur in the soil. Because a profile test is more difficult to take, and because its usefulness is only for that one crop, I often suggest only to take one or two profile samples per field. Any profile soil test will also include nitrogen and chloride as well. Ideally, take the profile test a few weeks before planned fertilization, so the results can be processed in time, but not so early that the results will be inaccurate. Putting on sulfur fertilizer is easy, and it comes in all forms. A common dry fertilizer is gypsum, which is calcium sulfate. Gypsum can be top-dressed in the spring, but it takes some rain for it to dissolve. Ammonium sulfate is another dry fertilizer that supplies part of the nitrogen as well. Ammonium triosulfate and potassium triosulfate are liquid fertilizers, and both can be mixed with UAN and top dressed with a drill bar. Rates of sulfur fertilizer will often be around 10 to 20 pounds per acre. If you have any questions about wheat fertilization, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Recognizing the need for reliable local lease information, 
The K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District is conducting pasture and cropland lease surveys specific to Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson counties. These surveys will help us get a closer look at the average dollar amount for lease agreements, as well as some of the arrangements that are working for landowners and renters. This type of information has proven useful to landowners, producers, ag lenders, and extension personnel in other districts as they work through the various aspects of lease agreements. In addition to the price per acre question, you'll see questions pertaining to the arrangement. This will give us a snapshot of who does what for the operation. As we all know, each lease is different. Sometimes the landowner takes care of the fertilizing, sometimes it's the tenant. Fencing is another common factor that flips between parties. The water system is often not really a part of the conversation, but one that's critical for livestock production. This information cannot be gathered without the help of landowners that lease pasture and cropland, as well as the renters. Both pasture and cropland lease surveys will take less than 10 minutes to complete. No personally identifying information will be asked for, so all survey information will be strictly confidential and will be compiled with all other responses. These surveys are voluntary, but will assist us with providing accurate and reliable information. The surveys are available online and in paper form. The survey can be found through our social media pages and from our website, wildcatdistrict.kstate.edu. I have also sent it out as a link to our e-newsletter recipients. If you'd like a paper copy of this survey, please call the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. We'll be mailing out paper versions of the survey to landowners and tenants that may have limited internet access or if you simply prefer good old paper and pencil. Additionally, we put a little Google form in the e-newsletter to submit your address for receiving a hard copy of either the pasture, crop, or both surveys. If you're interested in receiving our e-newsletters, please reach out to us. As the Livestock Production Agent, I publish an e-newsletter titled, No Bulletin. That goes out monthly. Our crop production agent, James Coover, will be publishing one titled, The Root Review. The summarized data will be available in 2021 in paper and digital form. At this time, there's an Ag Lease and Ag Law meeting planned for January 23rd, available virtually and possibly in person at the Southeast Research and Extension Center. More details on this meeting will be forthcoming. Please continue to follow Wildcat Extension District on Facebook, Twitter, our website, radio programs, and newsletters. The survey is open now through January 11, 2021. For more information on pasture leases, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is the David Strantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents for the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension Report. During cold weather, it is a priority for producers to keep their animals safe and warm. In addition to providing animals with food, water, 
and a shelter where they are able to get out of the wind and or rain to stay warm and dry. However, for young animals and animals that have recently given or are about to give birth, extra considerations should be taken to make sure they stay warm. To provide an extra source of warmth, straw and or shavings can be provided and heat lamps can be used. While heat lamps and straw or shavings can keep animals warm, the combination also increases the risk for barn fires. The chance of barn fires caused by heat lamps can be reduced if precautions are taken. There are many factors that affect the quality of a heat lamp, and if the heat lamp is poorly made, it can lead to an increased chance of it causing a fire. Short, thin cords, poor connections to the fixture, unreliable attachment points for hanging, and just general cheap construction are factors that reduce the quality of the heat lamp. The first tip to help prevent a fire caused by a heat lamp from starting is to use quality made heat lamps. The heat lamps that are made out of heavy duty plastic and are fully enclosed will help prevent the chance of a fire starting if the heat lamp were to fall and break. How the heat lamp is installed is also important. While it is convenient to hang heat lamps up with baling twine, it is safer to hang them up in a more permanent fashion using chains and if possible, hang them where livestock cannot reach them. In addition to using a quality made heat lamp and installing the heat lamp securely, Use hard glass bulbs. Stay away from using bulbs that are made out of thin glass as the hard glass bulbs are less likely to shatter and break if the heat lamp were to fall. In addition to the heat lamp, bulbs, and installation of the heat lamp, there are other precautions that can be taken as well, including making sure to use a quality breaker box that is designed to trip the breaker if the heat lamp were to spark. You can also install a smoke detector in the barn to alert you of smoke so the fire can hopefully be caught before it gets out of control. And it is also important to keep a fire extinguisher in the barn so if a fire does start, you can hopefully stop it from spreading. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. With temperatures dropping, tender trees, shrubs, and perennials are at risk of being killed by low temperatures. There are two ways to avoid the death of your plant to hard freezes. Bring it inside or put it in a favorable microclimate. Microclimates are very specific atmospheric conditions immediately surrounding the plant that are more favorable than general atmospheric conditions. The two weather conditions gardeners and homeowners have the most control over are reflected heat and wind. As the sun gets lower in the sky to the south during the winter, more sunlight reflects off of southern walls of houses. This reflected light can be used to keep garden beds on the south side of the house warmer, which will increase the chance of temperature-sensitive plants surviving. Placing a thin layer of mulch around the plants will help stabilize soil temperatures and keep the soil warmer, which also increases the chance of tender plants surviving the winter. It is important to not pile the mulch too high. One to two inches of mulch is enough to moderate soil temperatures without running the risk of choking your plants. Slopes in the lawn and garden can create problems for plants, even thought to be hardy for the climate. 
This is because significant drops in elevation can create cold sinks in freezing or below freezing temperatures. A cold sink is the result of hot air being less dense than cold air. The cold air pools in low spots in the garden, sometimes creating as much as a 7 degree difference from ambient temperatures. This can lead to unseasonable frosts and failure of plants even thought hardy for our area if the temperatures drop enough. If you have any spots in the garden that are low, consider backfilling with topsoil to create an even grade or plant your most cold hardy species in these areas. Wind is the other controllable aspect of our microclimate. Putting tender plants near sheltering structures like fences will protect from cold winds and planting them on the opposite side of structures from prevailing winds will provide the maximum protection. Winds will be strongest during the day, so oftentimes the ambient nighttime temperature will be the deciding factor on whether plants live or die. If you can't work with microclimates in your planting space due to excess shade or no southern facing garden beds, then proper plant selection for cold hardiness will be your best bet to keep your plants alive and kicking throughout the winter. The University of Nebraska is currently looking for people to participate in a study centered around foraging for wild plants and mushrooms. The study hopes to examine what people harvest from the wild and the motives behind foraging. If you have ever gone foraging for wild edibles, please take a little time to fill out their survey. The results will help guide future politicians and conservationists to create policies that protect both the environment and foraging as an outdoor activity. Information on the survey can be found on our Facebook page. The survey closes on December 21st. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.